You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, there's hope ahead for Hawaii's economy, but any meaningful economic recovery is not likely to get underway until probably the middle of next year. That is the latest forecast from the University of Hawaii's economic research organization, UHERO. The group's current report just out this morning, and Executive Director Carl Bonham went through some of the highlights with HPR's News Director Bill Dorman. Bonham started by talking about the economic impact of the furloughs that Governor David Ige announced this week, scheduled to begin on January 1st. There's no real way to put any kind of positive spin on it. It's a reduction in spending in the local economy that unfortunately will will act to slow the economy further. You know, that's really the reason that it's so important for the federal government to step up to act and to support states. There was a huge amount of research on the effects of the recovery money that was spent after the Great Recession and how that impacted the overall U.S. economy and states' economies. And, and one of the things that we, we learned, and I think there's a broad consensus on this, is that the federal government withdrew support, uh, stopped spending money too early, and the states, because of the budget crises that they all faced, uh, cut their spending right as the overall economy was beginning to sort of dig its way out of the Great Recession. And the the cuts in state spending prolonged the Great Recession by by years. And, you know, that's likely to happen again unless the federal government can provide enough resources for states to keep from cutting public education, to keep from cutting, you know, important public services. And there's a, you know, there is a knock-on effect, a, a multiplier effect from those lost dollars. You know, every every dollar that gets cut out of the state budget is likely to lead to well more than a dollar. We talked about a, an estimate that was consistent with our models of about a dollar fifty in lost overall economic activity. When you look at timing of an agreement in Washington for increased uh, financial aid that does include the states, how much time do we have in Hawaii in terms of cushioning a relative impact? I mean, the bottom line is that earlier is dramatically better. You know, if we have to wait six, eight months, uh, which you know, is completely plausible given the behavior of, of Congress, you know, if we have to wait until uh, a new administration gets going and bills get introduced and then we uh, can't come to agreement and it drags on, that's definitely worse, particularly as, you know, in, in our forecast, we envision that there's really kind of a pause button that's been hit on our recovery because of the, the winter wave. You know, whatever the number is, there's obviously a, an enormous wave of cases nationally that combined with, you know, policy choices we make here about public health that are likely to slow Hawaii recovery and nationally, you know, there's talk, many economists are talking about a double dip for the U.S. because of that new surge in cases. And so public health is is obviously paramount right now. And um, it's not clear that, that states have the resources to even distribute the vaccine in a timely fashion. And you do say in your forecast, meaningful economic recovery delayed until the middle of next year. How much of a change, and I know it's early on with developments with the vaccine, but how more optimistic is your view with that as part mm -hmm. of being in play? 
it didn't change our forecast dramatically because in our last forecast, and I, I think even the one before that, you know, we were sort of operating under the assumption that we would have a vaccine in 2021 and that it would become widely available by the second half of 2021. What the news about the vaccine has done is it has increased our confidence in that. Because of the uncertainty that we're dealing with and because COVID basically broke everything, it's like the theme song to this pandemic is Bob Dylan's Everything is Broken. And from unemployment benefits to, uh, you just take your pick, schools, and it, it also breaks forecasting models because everything depends on the virus, depends on public policy, it depends on public health. And so what we're doing is all that uncertainty, we're making assumptions and saying, look, here's a story for a plausible recovery path for tourism. Uh, and here's a story for what we think may happen in terms of federal stimulus and in terms of furloughs. So we, we put the furlough scenario in our pessimistic or our low scenario. We didn't put it into the baseline. Obviously, that was a mistake. Those scenarios, we did raise them um, for the visitor recovery, probably between 5 and 10 percentage points in terms of recovery by the fourth quarter of next year. But we also delayed the start of that recovery in the first quarter of the year because of what's happening with the virus. Just briefly, in terms of unemployment, you make the point that state unemployment rate has receded nearly 10 percentage points from its May high, but it's still more than twice the national average. And that carries lingering economic impact, of course. Yeah, and it's really even expected to be worse than, than that because that's the headline unemployment rate. Our forecast for 2021 of a headline unemployment rate of 9% suggests the broad unemployment rate uh, is likely to be much, much higher than that. And, the, you know, the broad unemployment rate counts uh, really people who are, are unable to find full-time work or have given up looking. And, you know, if, if you look back at the Great Recession, the broad unemployment rate didn't peak until 2010. In 2010, the headline unemployment rate was 7%, and the broad unemployment rate was over 10. Uh, so I won't be surprised if broadest unemployment rate measure is very high. I mean, right now it's at 16%, uh, which is almost as high as, it, as its peak in 2010 in the fourth quarter. So, I mean, it's not going to surprise me if we see that up in the you know, 17, 18, 19% range uh, well into 2021 and maybe even 2022. So people are going to be struggling for a long time. That extremely high unemployment rate and relative to the national unemployment rate and the job opportunities in other parts of the country will likely contribute to outflow of population in other words, people will leave to find work elsewhere. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about people coming here to work remotely. That's definitely a possibility. There's some evidence of that. There's some, actually, I'd say growing evidence of that. But at the same time, you know, there's Kamaaina. There, there, there are neighbors who are you know, thinking about moving somewhere where they, they can find work more quickly. Jobs, just one part of the complicated and still developing economic situation. Thank you, Carl. Carl Bonham is the executive director of UHERO, the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Bill. Aloha. 
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. On The Conversation, we regularly check in with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Uh, joining us uh, today for our reality check is education reporter Subon Lee. She has a story about how furloughs may affect our public school teachers and staff. Good morning, Subon. Hi, Catherine. So, nice to be back. Yes, you know, I, I uh, yesterday was such a flurry, and I know somebody had sent me the video that uh, uh, our school superintendent uh, sent her, sent around, and so you have you have the skinny on uh, what the plan is. Yeah, well, just to set this up, so of course on Wednesday, Governor Ige announced the state worker furlough plan but made note to say that the Department of Education and UH would release the plan separately on their own. Well, yesterday, um, Superintendent Christina Kishimoto um, sent out a video message to all 21,000 full-time salary employees of the DOE around 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Now, this was a video message intended for DOE staff, but um, um, you know, I got wind of it and the, the message does sort of lay out the broad contours of what the DOE furlough plan would look like for, um, for, for, for teachers, DOE staff, and any other full-time salaried personnel. Yeah, so, so it was interesting that they used that video to get the word out because, you know, everybody was wondering how that was going to affect, uh, you know, instructional time uh, and, and the, you know, the impact on the students in the classroom. Absolutely. I think we're still figuring, or they're still figuring that out, but what the furlough plan is, is six days of um, six days for 10-month employees between January 1st and June 30th, and 10 furlough days for 12-month employees in that same six-month time period. Now, the DOE spokeswoman said that they're still figuring out the timetable as far as which dates um, these would exactly be how they would actually be carved out and um, how they would figure that out. So they're aiming to release uh, more details before um, the um, before winter break ends or as soon as possibly next week when we see winter break start um, after Friday after next Friday. And I know some of the unions were you know talking about you know yeah where where do these furlough days come? Does it come out of a professional development or, you know, how exactly will this impact learning in the classroom? You know, I think that's really unclear still. Um, you know, the HSTA, the Hawaii Teachers Union, clearly is very upset and distraught by this announcement. Yesterday in a statement, they told me that um, they um, believe these are illegally imposed furloughs and that they continue to um, um, contend that they will take legal action to oppose the furloughs, that the state teachers have a contract, the contract is in place, and, you know, the governor or other state leaders can't just willy-nilly go um, and cancel such a contract. So we'll, we have yet to see how this plays out. But I think you do raise a really interesting question of how this will impact student instructional days. Um, of course, those who have been in Hawaii for um, more than a decade will remember furlough Fridays, which were imposed during the last economic recession in 2009. And students, I think, at the end of the day after a two-year period, lost about 17 instructional days total at that time. But this was when students were going back to class. This was 
obviously not a pandemic back then. We are in a pandemic now where learning has moved online mainly. So what does that look like when an instructional day is lost, when students are learning both synchronously and asynchronously? Um, a teacher is not always with them when they're learning right now. They have a lot of independent work assigned to them. So what does a furlough uh, day mean in this day and age, in this current online environment? I think um, those are the questions that will have to be sorted out in the days coming. Yeah, so we'll... Uh... We'll wait for the details. I know we've, we've heard the HSD threaten uh, legal action as well as some of the other unions and, you know, uh, you know, saying that this needs to be negotiated, not just imposed without our input. So uh, something to watch. But thanks so much, Suvon. You're welcome. Thank you. That was Suvon Lee with today's Reality Check. Head to civilbeat.org to read her story. Support for HPR comes from Hoku's, wishing everyone warm and safe holidays, with seasonal menus by executive chef Jonathan Mizukami, bringing new direction from culinary experiences across the globe. Kahalaresort.com. Kirk Caldwell is the only mayor who previously held a job of city managing director. That experience gives him a perspective of the workings of City Hall, but that hasn't meant complete success in getting buy-in with the majority of the city council members on his vision for our Honolulu. Just as his experience as a state lawmaker hasn't always made smooth sailing at the state legislature either. Caldwell will leave office with two of his cabinet members under scrutiny by the feds. His top civil lawyer, Donna Leong, received a target letter from the FBI and his managing director, Roy Amemia, a subject letter. We asked the mayor if he was worried that he would get a letter or subpoena from federal investigators. He said no, adding that his administration has not heard from the feds in some time. Caldwell does have three weeks to wind up his business with the city. Here's what he had to say as he comes to grips to saying aloha to a job that he has said he absolutely loves. And for me, I love the job of mayor. I'm going to be really sad when it comes to an end. And in fact, I supported the charter amendment four years ago that would have given the mayor of the city county of Honolulu an additional four years for a total of 12 years. And I wish I had 12 years. Partly because, you know, I think our administration has dreamed really big, and big dreams take a long time to implement. And I wish I had more time so that we could get the things finished that we haven't finished. What are you most proud of? You know, it, it's a lot of different things. But, you know, one, and it's something that's not covered a lot, is the, the city financial health and our very strong bond rating. You know, for the past eight years... We've had an incredibly strong bond rating, AA+. Plus. We've been told it would have been a AAA, but for the unfunded liability that rests with the ERS, which is a state entity that we're tied to, if we had our own um, separate entity, we'd have probably had a AAA bond rating. We've never raised real property taxes, single-family residential, and didn't even discuss it. We did do a, a, a special Res A category for homes over a million dollars that don't have a homeowner's exemption, in other words, investment-type properties. But the home that you and I live in never raised the rate, kept it the same the entire period of time, and on top of it, kept a very strong financial health uh, condition for the city. 
The other thing I'm proud of, and it's something that's not always covered, is the cohesiveness of our cabinet. You know, we've had very little turnover. You, you know, if you look at media, they cover turnover in other administrations and in other levels of government constantly. And the cabinet we started with is pretty much the cabinet we finished with, with a few exceptions. And I think it's because we, we selected people who are very strong, very committed, and very loyal to the issues of the city and serving the people of the city and County of Honolulu. And so I'm very proud of that. And most people probably wouldn't have thought of it without bringing it up. I just throw out to you, you know, the reaccreditation of the zoo is something I'm very proud of. Hosting of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, the first time since 1967. And, you know, as a mayor of, I think, one of the best cities in the world, showing off to mayors from major cities around our country and small little towns, showing off our city and all that we do and where we lead in things like climate change and diversity, infrastructure was a, a, a high point. And I'm also proud of the fact that the first woman chief of police was selected in the history of the state of Hawaii. I'm very proud of that. What and about your disappointments? I beg my disappointments. A couple things. As I mentioned, not enough time to get things finished. And related to that is not seeing the completion of rail. You know, we fought long and hard for rail despite every challenge, uh, despite every controversy, despite every conflict. We have not backed away. We've kept a hard pressure on moving the project forward. And I am proud of the fact that after eight years, we have 15 years of um, 15 miles of the project either completed or under construction. Have less of less than a quarter of it remaining. Um, but I wish I could have seen the rest of it completed, or at least be here to get the last segment underway, which I won't. So that's a disappointment. Another one that was an issue early in my term was the sale of the affordable housing inventory. You know, something we worked long and hard on when I was the managing director. I came back after I beat the previous mayor and we worked on it. And then it died in the council in the 11th hour. And I think it would have been great to have that sale completed because it would have probably resulted in better management of our city properties and got more people into housing that deserve that housing. Another one is, you know, not getting the legislature to extend a GTE for a longer period of time to build rail. As you know, I went to the legislature twice. I initially asked for it to be extended in perpetuity like other legacy rail systems around our country to pay not only for construction today, but to pay for construction in the future and then other co- also cover operation and maintenance and replacement of stock, you know, our cars and rolling stock and that kind of thing. It didn't occur, and I asked for a longer period of time. Both times it was not given that. So it forces the city to continually go back to the legislature and, you know, put a lot of people through pain and suffering when I was hoping that one decision would be made at one time and the funding would be there so we wouldn't have this on-again, off-again issue and we wouldn't have the Federal Transit Administration questioning, is there a commitment by the city and state government. Do you think that we're at a juncture, though, that the next mayor will go back and ask for that as as kind of a a solution? You know, I don't want to speak for the next mayor. I I could speak for myself if I was given a third term. I would not immediately go back to the legislature and ask for an extension of the GET. I think it's more important that we develop a way forward first. 
in a phased approach with the money that we have and the income stream we see as we climb out of the pandemic. And then I would come forward with a recovery plan and a financing plan that made sense. And I think it's going to take a while. And I think there's so many challenges with the utility relocation issue on Dillingham that it's going to be a couple years. So I would not rush up to the legislature asking for the GET to be extended, particularly given the challenges the state is facing chasing a $1.4 billion budget shortfall. It would be not a good time to go asking for such an extension. You have been listening to Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell as he reflects on his time in office. We'll hear more from him later on in the hour after a short break. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, and Honolulu Waldorf School. sat down with Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell earlier this week. He is preparing to turn over the reins of a job he admits he doesn't really want to give up. It has not always been easy trying to find solutions to our housing issues, whether it's addressing our homeless problem or the runaway illegal vacation rentals in our neighborhoods. We pick up the conversation that we had with him on this issue. The city just announced that it has an agreement with Expedia and Airbnb to share information about its operators to help the city in its efforts to crack down on the tens of thousands of illegal rentals here on Oahu. The thing I like the most is they're going to provide us a list of all their vacation rentals. Department of Planning and Permitting will review it. And when they find illegal ones, they will notify the hosting platform and they'll take them off their list forever. In other counties, they have to re-scrub it on a regular basis. In our case, if it's determined that that home or that apartment is in a legal vacation rental and they take it off, they've agreed under this memorandum of understanding not to put it back on again. So it gives us an ability to really manage where vacation rentals should be, where the legal ones are, which is in the hotel and resort areas where they should be, and where they should not be, which is in residential areas, unless they have a non-conforming use certificate, of which there's less than 800. And they continue to drop every year because as places get sold, they don't want to rent their home as a vacation rental. And so that number will drop. Do you wish you could think, have done more you know, to tighten up and help with enforcement? Well, I think this agreement will help tremendously. I think our enforcement has much improved, and we have issued many more notices of violation and got compliance. But I do think another step would be working to find a third-party vendor that could help also go out there and look at the different sites. We have agreements now with the two largest hosting platforms in the United States, but there are others who may be violating. So I do think, and I've been pushing Department of Planning permitting, they're looking at finding a third-party vendor to sign a contract with to help us become our eyes and ears to find those who are still renting their homes or their condo units illegally. I know the governor has just announced his intention that they will have to furlough workers. Any thoughts about that? You know, one of the things we're most proud of is our strong 
financial health at the city, which enables us because of our rainy day fund and our planning for a downturn. It's resulted in us not having the furlough immediately. And I'm very proud of that. And that is to the credit of our budget and fiscal services folks, starting with our director, Nelson Koyonagi, and his deputy, Manuel Buena, and many other departments. And we saw this coming when the pandemic struck in March. You know, we just submitted our budget. We could have just left it with the council to figure out how to handle the pandemic impacts, but we took the budget back, made further cuts, and submitted a revised budget to the council that resulted in savings sufficient that for the remainder of this fiscal year that goes through the end of June of 2021, no furloughs need to be made, and I don't support them. I think this only it has a more negative impact on our economy. We're talking a little under 10,000 city employees that if they were furloughed would have less money in their pocket, which means they're spending less in our economy. And it generates that downward spiral we want to avoid. So we have worked hard on that. We're also working to submit a balanced budget well before March. As you know, our term ends on the 2nd of January, but we're hoping to announce shortly uh, that we're going to close this budget gap of about $400 million so that we will submit a balanced budget in the middle of December, even though it's not till to March. And that's partly to turn over to Mayor-elect Rick Blangiardi a balanced budget for him to work on. Now, if he doesn't like how we balanced it, he can change it and unbalance it and rebalance. But we're trying to address our fiscal responsibility, and we're going to be able to balance this budget without furloughing. And so I'm proud of that again. I, th I think we've managed very well the fiscal responsibility that comes with running this city. It is being conservative in cost, but we also have raised revenue, whether it be through Res A or other means, but not impacting the rank and file homeowners of the island of Oahu. Real property is our main revenue source. Any thoughts on the homeless situation and, and uh, what you've done or, or what you have left undone? I don't know of a mayor in this country who's come up with a solution to the homeless challenge. We all share our experiences and we all add on to what each other is doing. But it is probably the most difficult problem I believe mayors face. And I think the incoming mayor will face the same challenges. You know, the pandemic, there will be a vaccine. It will be widely distributed at some point, And then COVID-19 will go away while the homeless challenges will remain. When I came into office in 2013, I didn't run away from homelessness. I didn't say it was a state issue. It's not a city issue. Previous mayors had argued that. I said it's an issue for the city and the state, and the city is going to do its part. And we developed a compassionate disruption approach. I know it's sometimes controversial. Um, the disruption part comes with sit-lie uh, sidewalk nuisance ordinance because providers told us that if you allow people to locate in public spaces with no consequence, they will continue to locate in those public spaces and not seek shelter or permanent supportive housing, which we strongly support. And you saw that in spades at Kakaka Waterfront Park back in you know, the middle of my term when you had over 300 homeless folks in one dense location where there was violent crime being committed, uh, where women were being raped, where there was theft, and when a representative of the house got beaten up. And that's unacceptable. And that's what happened with no enforcement. With enforcement, you saw a breaking up of that encampment. 
And with enforcement, when I came in, Thomas Square was occupied by homeless. It's now clear. Um, Stadium Park was occupy homeless it's now clear alamona beach park was filled with homeless it's now clear cockaugh waterfront park mother waldron it does not mean that there are not homeless in other areas in a more more broken apart and in smaller groups and i think it's actually safer when you have fewer people gathering together that are homeless but that's the enforcement side and by the way we've cleared tons and tons and ton, tons of material left by the homeless that would have created incredibly unsanitary conditions if left there. But on the compassionate side, you know, we've, we adopted housing first, the first in this state. We believed in that model. President Obama adopted it. We jumped on it and we purchased or built thousands of housing units for housing first, for housing the homeless. And in addition, you know, you covered stories, our Sand Island container housing with low barriers. You can come with your pets at any given time. There's 100 individuals out there. It's a navigation center where we help people get stabilized and then navigate them into shelter or permanent supportive housing. Kahoiki Village with Doing Kurisu at K Lagoon, you know, we did a public-private pri- public partnership there. There's about 500 mostly women and children living out there supported by a preschool, a post office, and a store. The Punavai Rest Stop Hygiene Center, you know, that where the people can come in homeless and they can wash their clothes, use the dryer, take a shower, get their meals, zap their bedding for bed bugs, receive assistance for state IDs and other kinds of things. And now it's open 24-7 because of the pandemic. So you can come in in the middle of the night and take a shower or get help. And then on top of this uh, rest stop, is a is going to be shortly open up a medical treatment facility first temporary and permanent by next summer where those homeless who are injured or sick but don't need to go to an emergency room will be taken there to be treated and then there's 22 rooms on the top two floors where they can be placed in the permanent supportive housing where they can be stabilized and cared for instead of being put right back on the street where you sometimes see when you got punch bowl we have the Honu Mobile Homeless Housing Program, you know, that HPD started, a mobile unit that would go around and house folks in different parks for a short period of time. And when the pandemic struck, they turned it into post out of Kei Lagoon. Initiated, run, and operated by HPD. It's an incredible program that we're very proud of. And then another, Mon- Montgomery Motors is right next to our Punavai Rest Stop Hygiene Center just around the corner, across from the IH- IHS shelter. That's going to be completed this month. We'll be having a press conference shortly, and it will house uh, homeless individuals. They'll provide meals, uh, and they'll be cared for. It's a fairly large project. We're hoping that River of Life that feeds in Chinatown, feeds homeless in Chinatown, will relocate out there. We're working with them now. I've left things out, but we've done a lot of very innovative, cutting-edge, never-seen-before-in-other-cities type projects not because of me as mayor, by the way. It's the group that we put together, whether it be the, uh, the Department of Community Services, whether it be Mark Alexander and our homeless uh, department, whether it be design and construction or land management with Sandy Fun, who helped acquire all these properties. It's a caco thing, no silos, all hands on deck, a lot of compassion, a lot of innovation to help those who just can't find a way to get a house. Can you say anything about your future political plans? Well, I'm not ready to retire. Okay. I still have a lot of energy. Um, 
I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go camp and fish at South Point. I'm going to go to the neighbor islands where I have a lot of friends and do a lot of hiking and camping on those islands and some surfing. I'm going to spend some time with my wife and daughter. I think we're going to go up to the volcano and relax up there. I'm going to work on a book or two. And um, then I'm going to be looking at the next job I want. And, you know, I like the executive level of government. You know, I served in the state house as majority leader. And um, I like the executive side more than the legislative side. Legislative side is a blast. It's a lot of hearings, a lot of talking, a lot of voting. The executive side is about a lot of doing. Um, And I prefer that side of things. And I have appreciation. You know, I've, I'm lucky enough, Catherine, in my life. You know, I've worked at in all three levels of government. You know, I I worked for Dananoy in Washington D.C. on the federal level. Um, I worked here in the legislature on a state level, and then I was the managing director and mayor on the city level. And in all three branches, I clerked for the Chief Justice William S. Richardson. So I saw the judicial side. You know, I've seen the legislative side serving in the House of Representatives. I've seen the executive side from serving as the mayor. So I get a, you know, I love government. I love democracy. I love the push and pull of all three branches and all three levels. And I think I can serve in a larger capacity helping the state of Hawaii, which I love beyond any other place in the world. That was Kirk Caldwell taking stock of what he's been able to accomplish as a Honolulu mayor. Over these last eight years, he is looking forward to some quiet time before he decides whether he will run for governor. Well, that's it for us. Thanks for joining the conversation on this Aloha Friday. Now back to Pledge Central with Bill and Derek.